Lockdown Science. Hello and welcome to Lockdown Science with me, Ellie. And me, Andrew. We're now in week eight of lockdown and as well as working from home and smothering the cat with love, we've been amusing ourselves with some non-COVID related science again this fortnight. Although I would say that our crowning achievement of the week has probably been building a cat palace. Oh, the cat palace. Do we give away about the cat palace? I don't know. Do people want to know about the cat palace? Yeah, so basically the cat palace is the result of the fact that we've been getting fruit and vegetable deliveries from a company in our village and they deliver it in these cardboard boxes and we had probably like, oh, I don't know, eight of these maybe? And I was like, well, I mean, obviously we're going to recycle them at some point, but it seems like a waste to do that straight away. So I have transformed it into a veritable palace for the cat. She's not very keen on it. Although we do put treats in there and she's managing to get them out. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's going to grow on her. Just give her time. Give her time. But anyway, we said that we do the show to stop us from meticulously studying the behaviour of our cat. So let's get on with the show. Science of the Week. It's time for our Science of the Week quiz. Over the last few shows, you have been seeing a steady increase in your score. So if you'll remember, you declared on the last show that you'd be aiming for five out of five on this one. How are you feeling about that bold declaration? Not at all confident. I said that in the high of recording a show and then have had a really busy week and haven't revised at all. So, you know, I'm probably going to get nothing this week. I think that a couple of these you might have at least heard of, like I might have mentioned them or something. So we'll see. We'll see. Shall I go straight in? All right. Yeah, let's go for it. Number one. Last show, we celebrated the 30th birthday of Rosie the Humboldt Penguin. What else turned 30 years old on the 24th of April? Is it the Hubble Space Telescope? It is! I mentioned that in the week, didn't yeah, I? Did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. It is the Hubble Space Telescope. When the Hubble was launched in 1990, it represented an enormous step forward in technology. It gave us a chance to look at the universe without the disturbance of artificial light or, you know, Earth's atmosphere getting in the way. For its 30th birthday, the Hubble sent back a photo of a star-forming region close to the Milky Way. In case you were looking for specifics, they were Nebula's NGC 2014 and NGC 2020. Did you know that the Hubble initially got off to a shaky start? I did, yeah. They had problems getting the focus on the pictures right. Yeah, it was pretty much. So when it was launched, it started to send back blurry images, not these beautiful, sharp ones that the scientists were expecting. And it turns out that the edges of the Hubble's primary mirrors were like ground too flat by the margin of a single human hair. So luckily, this was repaired and it's gone on to send us back some stunning images of the universe. So thanks, Hubble. Here's to another happy 30 years. Yeah. I've got a cool follow-up fact for you. Yes. See if you you know this. Do you know how many papers, how many scientific papers uh, the Hubble Space Telescope was responsible for last year? Just last year? Just last year. Because I know it's been thousands since it's put up there. Yeah. No, I don't. Almost a thousand. Really? In, in one a single year. year? Yeah. That's incredible. Imagine that as a publication, right? See, it's giving us the birthday present by sending us photos, but I feel like for that kind of productivity, we should be giving it birthday presents. Yeah. What do you give to a telescope, though? I guess new technology. Yeah. But they do send people up. A clean? A clean. They do send astronauts up to fix bits of it. That's how it's been relevant for 30 years because they can actually tweak us a little bit up in space. It's not like when we send stuff out to go and look at the rest of the solar system and once it's up, it's up and it can never come back. This is something that's close enough to Earth for us to be able to go and fix. Exactly. But you see now, like, 
Is it just me or do you ever feel sorry for these satellites that have been out there so long and just keep sending us back photos? Like, I think I, I think I'm anthropomorphising them. Yeah, I think that's just you. But I'm just thinking of like little Hubble up there, you know, he's really cold. He's celebrating his birthday alone. Just me? I think, I think he's probably happy. Yeah, yeah. he's doing his job. Yeah. He's doing what he's made for. OK, well, happy birthday, Hubble. Number two. On the Nep estate in West Sussex are three nests with eggs ready to hatch. When they hatch, they'll be the first eggs from this species of bird to hatch in the UK in hundreds of years. What species am I talking about? The white stork. You knew this! I do know this, yeah. yeah. Did you see it on Twitter? I saw it on Twitter. Yeah, I thought so. I mean, I do follow a lot of ornithologists on Twitter. So. Exactly. Yeah, this is the white stork. A group of private landowners and nature conservation organisations have been working together on the White Stork Project, a plan to bring back white storks to the UK. White storks are thought to have been native to the UK hundreds of years ago, but they were lost due to habitat loss, hunting and potentially persecution during the Civil War. These days, they can occasionally be seen flying over the UK, but not breeding. But the aim of the White Stork Project is for there to be at least 50 breeding pairs across the south of England by 2030. Now, last year, one of their released storks laid eggs, but they failed to hatch. But this year, there are three stork nests containing eggs on an estate near Horsham. So maybe this is the year that the storks hatch in the UK. How do you feel about this project? I think it's pretty exciting. I love rewilding projects. And NEP, I'd love to go there, actually. I've not been, but it's supposed to be amazing. It's like the UK stronghold of turtle doves. They've got purple emperors, which are kind of very rare butterfly. They've got the wild storks there now. It's supposed to be just an incredible sort of wild area of land full of species that, that used to be common in our countryside. Yeah. The reason why I ask is because most people seem to be very excited, but I've also heard a few people say that we should focus on the declining birds that we have before putting resources into bringing others back. Do you think that's a fair point? Uh, I can see where they're coming from. Yeah. It's hard because our fauna is obviously depauperate relative to what it used to be. But I mean, we do sit in a slightly strange position as well, whereby some of the species that we've we've lost or, or are declining in the UK are actually not species that are globally of conservation concern. You know, the Osprey project in the 70s and 80s was a fantastic success. But whilst the Osprey was very threatened in the UK, it's not threatened globally. They're one of the few species that's found on every continent. So arguably it wasn't the kind of primary use of British conservation funding. And if we were to kind of target our conservation funding from a bird perspective, it should all be about seabirds. The UK, the UK's seabird populations are of global importance, which is not true of anything else that we've got, really. But at the same time, I think it's a great way of getting people engaged in wildlife and conservation and, and excited about cool species coming back. And if you're creating the habitat for these species to exist and survive, then you're probably benefiting a lot of other species at the same time. That's true. And this is something that I keep discussing with my students, which is there's not necessarily a right or a wrong answer as to where you put conservation money. Essentially, we don't have enough resources. We need to make decisions. And as long as we use logic and we prioritise things as much as possible, then different people are going to make different decisions. Yeah, exactly. So we're, we're feeling excited anyway. I'm overall, excited. Overall, yeah, yeah. we're excited. Good. Well, good luck to those nests in that plan. Number three. The 1998 OR2 asteroid passed close to Earth on the 29th of April. How big was it? Oh, I did hear about this and I can't yeah. remember. I can't even remember the order of magnitude. 45 kilometres? 
No, no, only two. Only two kilometres wide. It came close enough, though, for NASA to term it a close approach. But can you guess how close it actually was? This is a bonus point. A couple of million miles? 6.3 million kilometres away. So that's 16 times further than the moon. So it doesn't really sound like a close approach. And it's the kind of distance that tabloid newspapers would probably try to convince you was a cause for concern. Yeah, just shave the edge off the atmosphere. Exactly. But as usual, the astrophysicists were onto it. They'd been monitoring it for years and knew that it wasn't going to be a danger. And it was actually a very exciting opportunity for scientists because they were able to study it at close quarters and get a better idea of what its orbit's like for when it passes the Earth in the future. So will it come close to us again? Yes, it will. And actually, late in the century, it's going to come again quite a lot closer. But still, they think absolutely fine. Mm. But, you know, this is the kind of thing that they they monitor it for. But yeah, it'll be coming back. Hopefully we'll be around to see it when it does. Yeah. (laughs) Number four. What unusual request did keepers at Tokyo's Sumida Aquarium make to the public last week? I don't know. Uh, Stay away from our penguins? (laughs) Also very valid. Please uh, please stop fondling our fish. <laughs> For once, the fish are not in danger of being fondled because of lockdown. But no, much less terrifying than that. Um, I don't know, donate your leftover tuna to feed to our dolphins? And... Oh. <laughs> oh, that's quite cute, but no. They wanted people to FaceTime their garden eels. So garden eels... <laughs> As you do. So garden eels are naturally shy creatures. They build individual burrows, which they reinforce with mucus, yummy, and rarely leave, only popping their heads out to see what's going on. So while the Semida Aquarium was open, they would pop their heads out. But now their keepers are saying that they're getting a lot more wary of humans and hardly emerging. And it's making it really hard for the keepers to do health checks on them. So the aquarium wanted people to FaceTime the eels to show them that humans aren't so scary. They held a festival from the 3rd to the 5th of May, so it's already passed, unfortunately, where they put five tablets around the eels' tanks so that people could video call in and spend a few minutes with the eels. I realise that this is probably a marketing ploy, but also I'm really quite sad that I missed FaceTiming the eels because they're really cool. Yeah, that would have been pretty fun. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder whether this is going to become a thing in lockdown, like... You know, big public attractions that draw huge crowds are probably going to be some of the last things to open. So places like, you know, museums and zoos are having to get creative in their outreach. So maybe it'll become a regular thing that, like, you can FaceTime your favourite animal around a zoo. Yeah. And they and they put... I mean, I suppose it's kind of like webcams, but there's something about the idea of FaceTime that you're kind of dialing in for a chat with them rather exactly. than just kind of creepily peering on them on a webcam on, on the internet. Yeah, I mean, maybe the garden eels don't want to hear what I have to say, but at least it's interactive so I can say all I like to them and they're going to have to just chill out and listen to me. Yeah, or dive back into their burrow. Or maybe we could do one of these, if they do it again, where we just play lockdown science with them and see, do their garden eels say yes or no? Yeah. If they say no, maybe we stop doing the we show. We might not like the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Number five. What may have triggered the 2018 eruption of the Kilauea volcano on Hawaii? I don't know, nuclear testing? Uh, No, unusually heavy rainfall. Wow. So the most recent eruption of the Kilauea volcano actually started all the way back in 1983. And until 2018, most of its magma seeped through fissures at the Upper East Rift Zone. 
But on the 3rd of May 2018, the Lower East Rift Zone opened up and started spewing lava, which caused devastation to part of the island. But why the sudden change after 35 years? Well, scientists now think that it could have been because unprecedented rainfall in early 2018 caused a small increase in ground pressure, which may have allowed already weakened rocks on the Lower East Side to break up, allowing the lava to burst through. Did you think rainfall could do that? No, that's kind of scary. It's still a little bit contested because this won't have increased the pressure hugely. Mm. They said that it's about similar pressure to a wave. Okay. But they're thinking if the rocks were already kind of weakened, this could have caused a change. Yeah, they need something that that triggered it. Yeah, exactly. Well, on today's quiz, you got a grand total of two. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, your hubris on the last show has come back to bite you. How do you feel about that defeat? Yeah, it started so well with the first couple of questions. Yeah, solid-ish score. Let's give you, a, I guess, a C-plus for effort. Right. Great. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Journal Club. Now we come to Journal Club, where we present some of the best papers we've read this week. They don't have to be recent, they might just be something new to us. What have you got? Well... I have another ancient animal discovery for this week because I absolutely love it when paleontologists discover weird new species. If I told you that paleontologists have now discovered a mammal from 72 to 66 million years ago that they're nicknaming Crazy Beast, what would you imagine it would look like? Ooh, maybe it's a dinosaur with a mane of feathers and claws that stick out at weird angles and goofy teeth. That sounds so good. Maybe we should, like, Jurassic Park-style make one of those. Yeah. But no, it's not that. It's actually a bit like a badger and around the size of a house cat. And the specimen would have been around three kilograms, but it wasn't fully grown. So it doesn't exactly sound like something that warrants the name Crazy Beast. It doesn't really sound ferocious enough. Yeah, I mean, at least Crazy Beast... They've got to be expecting that it's like a honey badger. Yeah, or it could have been. Hang on. Okay. Right. They've called it Crazy Beast because it's got a number of features that are totally unexpected. Now, I say it's termed Crazy Beast. This is because of its genus name, and it's the only one in its genus at the moment. Its genus name is Adalatherium. Now, Adala means crazy in Malagasy, the language of Madagascar, where the fossil was found. And Therium means beast in Greek. And it dates back to the time of Gondwana and is the best preserved fossil skeleton of a mammal from the Mesozoic era. Tell me about Gondwana. Uh, So if I remember correctly, uh, Gondwana was a supercontinent in the Southern Hemisphere that was made up of what's now Africa, South America, Australia, Antarctica and the Indian subcontinent. Yes, exactly. And I think also the Arabian Peninsula as well. Oh, I didn't um, know that. But yeah, it's a supercontinent. Mammals at this time were assumed to be only very small, around the size of a mouse at biggest. However, from 88 million years ago, Madagascar, where it was found, became separated from the rest of Gondwana. So animals may have evolved differently there, under different pressures and and with different opportunities to those on the continent's mainland. There's a general rule in ecological theory that if populations of animals get separated on islands and start to speciate, that is, to evolve to become different from the species on the mainland, generally large animals evolve to become smaller and small animals evolve to become larger than their continental brethren. So, other than it being relatively large, it's unusual in that it had more vertebrae than any other mammal from the Mesozoic era and its rear tibia were bowed. It had a huge number of small holes in its skull for nerves and blood vessels to pass through, so probably had a very sensitive snout. 
Its front teeth were like a rodent's, so they would never have stopped growing. And its rear teeth are unlike any seen before, something that helped them in deciding it needed to be in its own genus. The bowed back legs, the strong back muscles, large back claws and supposed sensitive snout suggest it might have been a burrowing animal or at least able to dig for food. Like a little badger. That's cute, right? Ah, but what's it, what's it most closely related to? It's, um, it's clearly pretty evolutionarily distinct, but they are comparing it to a badger. So when you said honey badger, we don't know exactly, right? Because they think that it kind of could burrow, it had the sensitive snout, so maybe it was burrowing for food, but we don't know that it wasn't like really ferocious like a honey badger. Yeah. It was smaller than a honey badger, about the size of a cat. Yeah. But we don't know, maybe it has some attitude. The process behind this paper is also really interesting because the fossil was so delicate, the team used X-ray micro-CT scanning to map the bones and teeth through the encasing rock, which made a 3D computer model of the skeleton. And then they could 3D print pieces of the skeleton to get a better look at them, which is just mad, like holding these perfect replicas of the bones of a freaky little mammal that went extinct millions of years ago. Don't you just love technology? Yeah, that's really cool. So I just like, I, it kind of just blows my brain, the fact that we can do that kind of thing. It's like bringing to life something that died millions of years ago is just incredible. Anyway, before I keep nerding out about this, what have you got? So I've got something that was sent in by a listener. Ooh, listener post. Yeah, we've got at least, I don't know, four. And we love all of them. And we love all of them dearly. Especially ones who send us in papers. Yeah. So this is a paper entitled Effects of Amusing Memes on Concern for Unappealing Species. Ah, oh, bringing memes to biology. I love it. Yeah. Well, memes memes were proposed by Richard Dawkins. So well, they're, sort of, they're, sort of, they're, they're sort of biological. Not that type of meme. Let's give a shout out to the listener who sent this in. Yeah, so this was from Matt Lewis. He's an MPhil student in the zoology department in Cambridge. Yep, in the insect ecology group. Thank you, Matt, for this absolute gift of a paper. Yep. So this is a paper. It's not even fully published yet. It's an accepted article. Matt's ahead of the curve. Yeah, always. This is a paper where they use data from social media posts to see how memes involving proboscis monkeys, which they... I'm I'm not sure about the premise of this. They say that proboscis monkeys are unloved species. Oh, who um, doesn't love proboscis monkeys? Yeah, exactly. So can you describe a proboscis monkey? Yeah, so proboscis monkeys are a type of monkey with enormous noses, like really bulbous, I guess, ugly noses. But on a monkey, it's kind of cute. Yeah. Maybe I'm biased. Anyway, apparently there are memes of proboscis monkeys in Poland that have become very popular since 2016. And what the authors did, they looked at whether memes of proboscis monkeys correlated with interest in the species as determined from Google searches for proboscis monkeys and it did and also whether this led to an increase in small-scale donations of funding which were made not to NGOs but to places that were putting up memes of proboscis monkeys who were collecting on behalf of NGOs. Interesting. But it's going via the medium of the meme rather than of the NGO. And the total raised was sort of 600 US dollars. It wasn't huge but it it was the fact that they could generate that from the memes and in the context of they compare that to a average salary in Borneo which is where proboscis monkeys are native to and the average salary there is only $200 mm. so actually in the context of proboscis monkey conservation $600 from some ad hoc social media campaigns is a you know reasonably large return and so the other things that were interesting about this is that the interest of polish people in proboscis monkeys was higher than the interest of local people living in borneo oh. which contradicts a, a general theory that 
people have higher interest in local conservation issues. Do you think that could be a case, though, that people, because this is based on internet searches, yep. do you think it could be a case that people locally just know a lot about proboscis monkeys and don't feel the need to search for them on the internet? Possibly, I suppose. Yeah, you can't rule that out. I, I don't know how this would compare if you did it with other species. But they also showed that interest in proboscis monkeys in Poland was higher than in species typically used for conservation uh, funding campaigns like pandas and orangutans and koalas. So they like the monkeys more than they, they like liked. the monkeys more than than they like the typically cute species. And also poles like proboscis monkeys more than the rest of the world as a whole. Okay, so why was yeah, why was Poland chosen? Because because there's a particular thing that has become since 2016, proboscis monkey memes have kind of taken off and there's become this thing about the Polish proboscis monkey that's mm. sort of used to typify Polish life. Unfortunately, the article doesn't have pictures of the memes to illustrate it. Maybe it will do when it's fully published. Yeah. But the accepted article version doesn't have any any memes to illustrate, which is quite disappointing. I reckon we could Google this. I, I think, think we, we probably could find some proboscis monkey memes in Polish that we won't understand. But we can look at the proboscis monkeys anyway. Exactly. But as, as ever, there's, there's kind of an interesting point to this because conservation NGOs generally have a tried and tested method of using cute species to hook people and get people engaged. And what this paper's suggesting is that sometimes, whilst, yes, people like cute and fluffy they also like humor mm. and so actually the reason that the proboscis monkey is engaging is because it's the memes are presented in a humorous way they're satirizing polish life and it's something that polish people are connecting to and and therefore they're engaging it in a humorous affectionate way and that's what's getting interest and so the authors of the paper sort of suggest that maybe engaging in kind of entertaining memes which can still be scientifically and ecologically accurate might be an alternative way of generating interest and future conservation funding. And if you think about it, you can see this in other things, right? So I remember a few years ago, there was a photo of a blobfish that went viral. And I mean, I'd never heard of a blobfish, but it went all over the internet. And now loads of people know what a blobfish is vaguely yeah. because because of one picture of a blobfish that had a vaguely human kind of face. Actually, not dissimilar to a proboscis monkey. Looked like a very big nose on um, on the blobfish. Yeah. And scientists try this sometimes on Twitter anyway. So a year or so ago, there was a hashtag unscience and animal. Uh, oh, I love unscience and animal. Yeah, it was great, wasn't it? Which was basically everyone posting cool photos of wildlife that they studied, but giving it silly labels. And that was popular because actually it was just entertaining. But in the process of putting in those silly labels, you could kind of put in a bit of interesting biology about species. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. So what is the takeaway message from this? Should we all be going out and making memes? I mean, not necessarily on overkill, but I think certainly that, you know, there's a place for humour and light-hearted entertainment in raising conservation awareness and that possibly NGOs could take a, an alternative approach to fundraising in the future. Isolation Recommendations well, it's that time of the show where I ask Andrew for his Twitter recommendation of the fortnight. So what have you got for us now, Andrew? Well, actually, this account links quite well to what we were just talking about in the paper section. My Twitter account this week is at Strange Animals, which is an account which tweets images and facts of weird animals from around the world. Some of them definitely fall into the cute category. There's a recent one of some acarpies, which are like a cross between horses and zebras, oh. and are really rather sweet. But some of them are definitely in the weird and ugly and generally unloved so there's another tweet about the budgets frog 
which I'd never heard of. Oh, tell um, me about that. Yeah, so it's also known as the wide-mouth frog from South America, and apparently they're very aggressive and make a loud screech. Same, mate, same. Yeah, um, and the photos are just wonderful. I mean, they look like some dodgy taxidermy in a museum Aww. with very kind of bloated appearance, poppy eyes, comically smiling mouth, sort of dumb expression. I mean, I'm looking over your shoulder and I can see where they're called wide-mouth frogs. Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine that they eat something substantially bigger than they are and they're not just taking flies or something but don't you kind of love the ugly ones even more than the cute ones in a way oh yeah 100 percent. it's like supporting yeah. the underdog yeah and i and i think that's kind of the point of the memes article but it's also the point of a twitter account like this because it's pointing out things that you just never have heard of otherwise but are utterly fantastic and bizarre in their own right and and it covers everything it's got mammals birds amphibians insects oh there's one one here are some sea bunnies which are actually mollusks that live in the ocean and they have these little things that look like ears but they're not they're called rhinophores um, oh anyone listening to this definitely has to google sea bunnies i mean you should go onto this twitter account but you should spend some time deep diving the internet into sea bunnies in general yeah sea bunnies and nudibranchs yes just generally the best things in the ocean yeah you got very exciting one time when we were snorkeling in thailand about christmas tree worms do you want to tell people <gasps> oh about i also do love christmas tree worms go on why yeah. don't you let it all out ah uh, so christmas tree worms are these little worms that live in they burrow into bits of coral and they stick out their feeding structures to catch stuff that's passing in the current but they're really brightly coloured and they come in all sorts of different colours and they're the shape the feeding structure is sort of the shape of a stereotypical Christmas tree so if you swim up to a reef with a lot of Christmas tree worms on you'll see a coral that has all of these brightly coloured little teeny tiny Christmas trees sticking out of it and if you waft your hand next to them they suck themselves into the coral really quickly and then they'll slowly sort of come back out again to feed and they are just the most enchanting little things if you or your kids have ever seen the TV programme Octon as well they feature on there yeah and i remember you seeing that episode and be like christmas tree worms hey who knows maybe they'll be on this account at some point maybe so they already are <laughs> remind us again what this account's called it's at strange animals and it's called a book of rather strange animals yeah well that's all we've got time for today but thanks for joining us if you want to send us your thoughts or recommendations for any new papers we should look into ready for the next show you can find us on twitter i'm at andrew underscore bladen and i'm at eleanor underscore bladen and since i'm camfm's head of publicity you can also contact me via email at publicity at camfm.co.uk and as you've seen from today if you send us in a suggestion we will genuinely read it out we'd love hearing from people well we hope you've enjoyed the show Make sure you tune in a fortnight for another episode of Lockdown Science on CAMFM. FM.